Hello, and welcome to the Campaign Podcast. I'm Kate McGee, Campaign's Associate Editor. In today's episode, I'm interviewing Rory Sutherland ahead of his annual Nudgestock event this Friday, which covers all things behavioural science and creativity. We discuss why Adlan needs to rebrand creativity so business understands it as a crucial tool for solving problems, not just some magic fairy dust sprinkled on after the serious thinking has taken place, as well as assessing whether the government's nudges on COVID really worked, and why the common flaw in future predictions is that they always assume we will have an increasingly urban existence. Let's get straight into it. So thanks, Rory, for joining us on the campaign podcast. Um, always a delight to speak to you. Um, we are speaking just ahead of your Nudgestock 2021 event, which is your ninth year um, of it running. And it's the second time it's running virtually. I don't think anyone expected us still to be doing virtual events this far down the COVID pandemic, but here we are. Um, and this year we have an amazing lineup of stars. We've got Ruby Wax, John Cleese, Dan Ariely, and Daniel Kahneman, big hitters there. So how are you feeling about Nudgestock this year? Yeah, funnily enough, I think we would have run it virtually or primarily virtually. We might have had a small studio audience, uh, even if there hadn't been lockdown conditions in operation, because having run it for uh, seven years uh, as a largely physical event, which was streamed online, we then went online only and had an audience of about 120,000 at the peak. We had 20,000 people registered and 120,000 people watching at uh, peak viewing hours. And... What is so significant about this, I think, is that it shows, apart from the else, the extraordinary scale of interest uh, in what is, of course, now the world's biggest festival of behavioural science and creativity. And the and, by the way, is in capital letters. That's not a kind of codicil or an addition. This is emphatically a festival of behavioural science allied to creativity. And it's very important that you have the two, because uh, what I think is so important about behavioural science is that um, it's a license to look at problems in a different way. It's licensed to take problems which were previously the province of kind of economists or lawyers and to actually look at them from a completely different standpoint, which is the standpoint of lived human experience and perception, okay? And through the standpoint of human behaviour, unconscious and conscious. And Daniel Kahneman himself, who's appearing at Nudgestock on the 11th of June, uh, nudgestock.co.uk is the registration <laughs> website, by the way. Um, he makes the point that rather annoyingly as a psychologist, a psychologist who went on to win the Nobel Prize for economics, nobody took psychology seriously until they rebranded as behavioural economics. And this is to some extent, if you like, um, a reframing of the role of creativity which is so many of the world's problems, I think, are caused, not because of a lack of intelligence, but because a lot of intelligent people are all looking at the wrong things. When you, when you look at it very simply, I always say it's very strange if you look at how the world tends to work, which is government tends to work with a bunch of lawyers occasionally taking advice from economists. And so what tends to happen is they start with legal solutions, compulsion. If those fail, they move to economic solutions which are incentives and only in the event that those two fail do they try persuasion now whatever you think that's the wrong way around you don't have to be a manic libertarian to realize that's the wrong way around to approach a problem you should see what it is that people are willing to do voluntarily and then if that fails you should try bribing them and if that fails you should try compelling them okay it seems fairly obvious to me um <laughs> but but so this is, if you like, a wonderful opportunity creatively. And I think the great, I think the great 
essence of creativity is to look at things, either look at different things from everybody else or to look at things in a different way. That glorious Sainsbury's planning example of, look, this 1.3 billion increase in sales looks impossible, but if you divide it down, it's one item per visit per basket. You know, that's an example of supremely um, uh, accomplished creativity. Now, it doesn't involve words or pictures. Forget about that. I think that's, that's where both marketing and the advertising industry have painted themselves into a corner. They've allowed people to see creativity as something to do with sort of verbal or visual artistry. And as a result, the application of creativity in business, John Cleese, funnily enough, will talk about this in his session, um, uh, is, is, has been basically passed to one side. There's no role for creativity here because it doesn't involve words and pictures. And so our, our belief is that this any tool that allows you to take a problem and look at it either using different metrics or looking at those metrics in a different way is an opportunity to deploy creativity. And it's actually more valuable in time than the ability to optimize a pre-existing model. Mm -hmm. I think so, the definition of creativity needs to change a lot of the time, doesn't it? Because particularly in industry, if you don't have creative in your job title, then you feel like you can't be creative. And certainly in the wide, wider world, people don't see these kind of they don't think they're particularly creative, but they might be actually brilliant problem solvers and coming up with different creative solutions, but they just don't see them. You know, they're not very good at art or they're not very good at writing things. And I think that that just needs to change because everybody can be creative. And, and the poor of that industry still has this muscle memory from when we were paid on commission, which is we tend to have that naive assumption that if there isn't some bought media as an integral part of the solution, then we haven't really solved the problem. And we need, we need to get rid of that. You know, that creativity can be deployed in lots and lots of areas which don't necessarily involve uh, communication at all. I mean, I think the conflation of marketing and Marcoms has been a disaster for marketing. Can you explain that a bit more? Well, I mean, properly defined, marketing involves things like new product development, involves things like pricing. It involves a whole gamut of different business skills. But... By being associated with Marcoms, simply because that tended to be the most, most expensive part, okay, that was okay if you're a Unilever or you were P&G or you were a packaged goods company, if you're a record, right? Because most of the chief executives, you know, most of your board would have had a marketing background in some shape or form, and they understood, and Marcoms was a highly significant part of your overall expenditure. But if you look at ad spend now, packaged goods are less than... 25%, they may be less than 20% of overall ad spend. And the slack's often been taken up by, say, mobile phone networks, insurance comparison websites, uh, you know, um, broadband providers, cable TV providers, who tend to have, first of all, the ad spend is a much lower proportion of their outgoings. So it tends to then get degraded to a kind of ancillary support function, not a strategic function. Because you're associated with something which is only a small part of the company's activity, and therefore you essentially um, become, you, you find yourself below the salt. And I think, I, I think that that's, I mean, there's a wonderful story Mark Evans tells me, he's the marketing director of Direct Line. And there was someone on secondment to marketing um, from another part of Direct Line who actually said in his first day, very fairly senior person, I don't know why they've seconded me to marketing because I'm rubbish at drawing. <laughs> but, but I think, I think in terms of COVID, you know, it's an extraordinary case where there's a mixture of, uh, you know, law, norm setting, which is to some extent behavioural. If you can get 70% of people to adopt a behaviour, it becomes fairly incumbent on the other 30% uh, 
uh, or a large proportion of the other 30% to go along with it. Um, and there's a mixture of, you know, in some cases, I suppose, economic incentives. But one of the things I think it has shown is that um, success actually entails, success in a liberal democracy, I might add, okay, entails a mixture of these three. It's been very interesting to me how, let's take an example, okay, where the problem is both scientific and behavioural, which is, I suspect they knew uh, quite a few months ago that outdoor low density socialising had a very low chance of transmission. Not necessarily talking about massive crowds, but people meeting in a garden, okay, uh, in fresh air was pretty low. Now, you could just say, well, on the basis of the science, we'll allow people to socialise in fairly large numbers in gardens and outdoors. Now, the behavioural angle on that would be you're looking at the wrong thing because outdoor socialising will ineluctably tend to lead to indoor socialising. In other words, it gets a bit cold, the patio heater runs out of gas, someone suggests moving to the conservatory, at first they leave the door open, then they close the door, then three people go to the loo, and the next thing you know is you've got five people having a row in the kitchen. So there's an epidemiological aspect to that, uh, uh, you know, decision, but there's also a behavioural aspect to it which is not only what happens if people socialise out of doors, but what are the behavioural... Co- and that actually happened at the White House. They all met in the Rose Garden. It seems to me there was no transmission in the Rose Garden. And then a bunch of people went into the, that orangery and you had a kind of super-spreading event. So if the White House mm. can't escape from this kind of behavioural tendency for outdoor parties to migrate indoors as it gets dark, it's unlikely that that's going to happen with the, with the public. And there have been yeah. really interesting findings, which I must admit, I wouldn't have, a lot of this stuff, I have to admit, I can only explain in retrospect, okay? I can't necessarily predict. So a Swedish colleague of mine said, the problem with the Swedish approach is that if you start very loose and then you start imposing more restrictions, people get really pissed off, mm-hmm. okay? Now, you can do the opposite, which is you start strict and you gradually release restrictions. And that is much, much easier for people to cope with than when it happens the other way around. Yeah. It's and like so, the new teacher. So, <laughs> so my, Swedish, my Swedish behavioral friend made a point, which is that actually the order effect matters. Strict and then less strict is much, much easier in terms of compliance than less strict followed by an ever increasing um, series of impositions. So I, mm-hmm. I, find, I find this extraordinary because it's like playing three-dimensional chess, you know, at some level. Um, but at least, I mean, I hope, you know, the Behavioural Insights team, obviously much more involved than Ogilvy, although Ogilvy has done quite a bit of work on this. Um, mm-hmm. I hope they held their influence in saying this isn't simply a question where you can look at the science and make recommendations without translating the recommendation into likely resulting behaviour, for example. And, yeah. um, they, you know, they were too slow. I mean, you know, it took too long probably to come up with hands, face, space. OK, um, but nonetheless, a large part of what was achieved was achieved voluntarily. And some of it was through fear. Um, in the case of younger people, I think it was genuinely through goodwill. Mm, interesting. I suppose sort of fear plays a big factor in that as well, doesn't it? That people don't want to catch this nasty disease. What's your view on the sort of the anti-mask people? Um, I'm... <laughs> I, I genuinely, you know, I like to think of myself as a fairly dissenting thinker. I genuinely don't fully understand it simply because it seems such a minor being compared to being drafted to fight in the Tet Offensive in the Vietnam War. Okay, of all the things the state can ask me to do, 
it's closer to letting cars in from a side road when you're driving slowly in a traffic jam than it is to, <laughs> you know, fighting in the uh, the first day of the Somme offensive. Okay, it's a hell of a lot. It's a hell of a lot closer to to good manners than it is to genuine sacrifice. So I'm I'm slightly bemused by it, I have to say. And I would argue that even if I didn't believe in masks, which I do, I think. Um, you know, they work at the margins. I don't think they work perfectly. Even if I didn't believe in them, I would do it as a basic courtesy to people who do. You know, if people are alarmed by unmasked individuals in the same way that I cover my genitals when I go to Sainsbury's to avoid distressing other people. OK, it's just basic courtesy. As far as I was concerned, the un- the anti-maskers, I think, come from. And by the way, it's not as simple politically as people often portray. It. They often portray them as right wing nutters. Actually, no, uh, they strangely bridge the political divide. And it tends to be people who've who, broadly speaking, are in a mode where they disbelieve more or less anything that comes from conventional news sources. And actually, I think I think it's important because there are aspects where news media have become slightly propagandist. I will admit, OK, I think the news coverage of Covid was propagandist. Uh, if you're asking me to give a, a what you might call a professional opinion, I'm not criticising it for that. But for instance, they would tend to show a 47 year old in intensive care or on a ventilator rather than a 73 year old. That's unrepresentative of the demography of the people suffering Mm. but it was probably done for the purpose of inculcating fear in people who are uh you know younger rather to prevent people from going it's just an old folks disease you know i'm basically safe mate but i mean that was undoubtedly you know the representation of information at some level took on an aspect of propaganda i think the interesting the interesting reframing of uh, anti-maskers, anti-vaxxers, etc., is it isn't what they believe you've got to look at, it's what they don't believe. And they're actually wired to disbelieve almost anything that comes to them from what you might call the MSM or a kind of government uh, or official information source. Uh, OK, that's been made possible by the internet, which connects these people with each other. You know, in my childhood, the, this person would have been the slight nutter down the pub. Okay, and he would have been outnumbered round the table by 17 other people. But if you want to know more about this, Nicholas Christakis, who's just written a book called Apollo's Arrow, which is all about the kind of network effects and history of pandemics. Uh, He'll be on at Nudgestock in the afternoon, British time. And um, his book's called Apollo's Arrow. And it's a fascinating read. In fact, this is why creativity is so important, is the thing I learned, I didn't learn this at university. I didn't learn this in school. Well, I, I learned this at Ogilvy and I learned this in creative departments. I learned this talking to Dave Trott. And I learned this talking to, you know, a bunch of great creative people, which is the real knack is just looking at things differently. And sometimes it means looking at them backwards. Sometimes it means reframing them. Sometimes it means looking at a metric that no one's considered. But, but creativity is the handmaiden of behavioural science, because at some level, they're both in the same game. They're both look at the business of, have you tried looking at this from this point of view? Because if you reframe the problem or you recontextualize the problem or you reconceptualize the problem, suddenly what looked like an intractable problem maybe becomes quite, we're number two, so we try harder, right? You know, turn lead into gold. What's the big disadvantage? Avis isn't as big as Hertz. Well, actually, if we turn small size into a benefit, customer care and uh, effort, not resting on your laurels, rather than being a weakness, We've just changed the game entirely. 
And something which we desperately tried not to talk about weirdly becomes the only thing we talk about. That's interesting. That's always loved the cliff strap line for that, you know, trying to make a kind of benefit, the idea of having to sit and wait while your pint is being poured, which must be a... A good thing sometimes is you wait is, frustration is most uh, of the time. reassuringly expensive, okay? They're all in exactly that mm-hmm. same um, uh, uh, cast of uh, reframing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely right. Um, I'd just like to talk about forecasting and predictions here, because um, I think you've talked a lot about, you know, data doesn't actually help predict the future. It's, it's you know, a past thing. Um, this is obviously a massive sort of social experiment. All this behavioural stuff, everyone's behaviours had to change. And there's a lot of discussion now about what's going to happen if people are going to revert back to the old way of doing things. You know, there's a new story, I think a think tank called Centre for Cities told the BBC, I think a couple of days ago, that they think the five-day office week could become the norm again within two years. You know, first <laughs> <a> blend of... <laughs> funny funny uh, that, isn't it? They're called the Centre for Cities, OK? <laughs> I know. I think the Centre for a Bucolic Existence might have a different forecast. Yeah. <laughs> Well, quite. But I'm um, interested in what you think. Uh, by the way, they're not, it's not impossible that they're wrong. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that the social pressure and norming reverts to a kind of presenteeism. It would be a huge tragedy if that were to happen, um, in my mm-hmm. opinion, not in the opinion of the Duke of Westminster or um, uh, Transport for London. In my opinion, it would be a, a, a lost opportunity if that were to happen. But history is full of plenty of those lost opportunities. So what do, what do you think that it will be, it's more likely that we're going to, because this is actually only, although it feels like an interminable amount of time, it's only a short period of time in the kind of general working world and, you know, what we've all been used to. So do you think we'll kind of quickly uh, forget and go back? Or no, no, no. Gen- uh, what's significant, one, it's been tested to destruction. It's worth remembering that what we've experienced over the last year and a bit uh, is not flexible working. It's an experiment in being under house arrest which is a completely different thing. We ought to make that point, okay? But it does test the principles of destruction, which shows that a lot of knowledge work, not all of it, but a lot of it can be effectively and more efficiently performed uh, in, uh, without, co- without necessary, co- necessary uh, permanent co-location, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and the, so, you know, we would be daft. The second thing that's important about it as a piece of behavioral change is that it happens simultaneously. If you'd got, you know, everybody in the world to try flexible working for a different week, okay, it wouldn't have worked very well at all. But it happened to everybody simultaneously. Now, with a lot of network goods, okay, they only deliver their benefits when they reach a certain level of adoption. So, you know, to take an extreme case, owning the world's only telephone is completely useless. In fact, the US only got to 50% telephone penetration in the home in the 1950s. And the reason was that there were still, in 1948, there were a lot of people who didn't know many people with phones, okay? Now, the mobile phone grew much faster because it interconnected with the landline network. In the first few years I had a mobile phone, it was rare to make a mobile-to-mobile call. And so there's something I think really interesting there, which is the fact that it was simultaneous actually suggests that one thing we probably ought to do going forward, and this would be a way to approach the climate crisis, would be to experiment with simultaneous impositions on behaviour, like car-free days, okay? Because a half-car day is no different from a car-free day. It's just you can cross the road a bit quicker, but you can't go for a country wander and have a picnic next to the M25. Not that I want to have a picnic next to the M25, but you get my point, okay? (laughs) It's not significant. You don't suddenly chat to all your neighbours because you're not driving anywhere, right? Yeah. So, you know, funnily enough, uh, the, um, one of our uh, colleague, my colleagues in Qatar got in touch because Qatar is proposing exactly this. 
And I had to write back with a whole question about why it's a worthwhile behavioral experiment, because one, you can't really imagine it in advance. And many of the benefits will only emerge if everybody adopts it simultaneously. So it has strong network effects going on there. Mm -hmm. But I I think, yeah, I'm I'm at the center for cities. I I would take an entirely contrarian view. And by the way, when I take this contrarian view, I'm not necessarily saying I'm right. I'm simply saying that mine is a point of view which is underexpressed or underconsidered, which is that too much of futurist writing assumes increasing urbanization. Okay, so the assumption about the future, okay, I mean, what seems futuristic varies. Birmingham, I was just talking to someone earlier, I said that in the 1970s, Birmingham had an advertising campaign which promoted itself as the motorway city, okay? Now, you know, because motorways were really, in the late 60s, motorways were really futuristic. And so associating yourself with motorways was like associating yourself with high tech in 2010. Okay. now my argument is that nearly every vision of the future extrapolates forwards and it it assumes that increasing parts of the population are going to be in huge global megacities of inordinate size with people living in high density, high rise housing. Okay. now we've got a lot of evidence. Let's be honest. Okay, we've got a lot of evidence that actually that's not very good for people's mental health. I mean, instances of schizophrenia, depression, etc., much higher in cities significantly. The point I'm making is that this vision of the future could be more bucolic or at least actually more suburban to some degree than we've envisaged. Because let's look at it like this, right? Previously, if you bought a place in Brighton, I always joke that creative people will move to the seaside much more readily than they'll move to the countryside. But if you bought a place in Brighton, that was for two of you, assuming a dual income household, which you'd need to afford a place in Brighton in the first place, okay? That's um, five days of grueling commuting for two people, two lots of season ticket in exchange for two days by the seaside. Now it's five days by the seaside in exchange for two days of commuting. That isn't just a change, that's a complete transformation in the ratio. And so, you know, so, so it isn't just, we, we shouldn't be looking, if you like, at standard additive mathematics. We need to be looking at uh, uh, multiplicative mathematics here. And I think, you know, I think, you know, the interesting thing about the internet to me is that it's... Um, Uh, it democratizes consumption quite significantly. It doesn't do that for theater. It didn't do that for live events and talks and conferences. If you think about it, if the campaign holds a conference or an awards show, right? Attending that awards show costs three times as much if you live in Scotland than if you live in London, right? Mm -hmm. Train down, flight down, overnight hotel stay. In Manchester, it probably costs more than double, okay? This is profoundly discriminatory. (laughs) Okay. Now, nobody thought of it as discriminatory because they didn't realise there was an alternative. Yeah, interesting. So let's talk about creativity then. Um, you think that the industry needs to promote creativity more aggressively and behavioural science can help that. And more broadly, yeah. We, and more broadly, yeah, yeah. I mean, to be honest, behavioural science is a Trojan horse. Behavioural economics, particularly, is a Trojan horse which can get uh, marketing thinking, creative marketing thinking, and uh, uh, the uh, creative mindset upstream and more broadly applied in a vastly wider range of businesses. So one of the reasons I created the behavioral science practice is I'm sick of just trying to work with the Marcom's budget. Okay. There are tons of applications for business creativity with clients, by the way, who don't even have a Marcom's budget significantly. So, you know, one of the clients I'm proudest of, you know, they're not a valuable client in material terms, but I'm really proud of them. The Thames Valley police, because they come to us and they go, 
you know, are there useful phrases we can use on a call center script which will discourage people from X or Y? I mean, a really, really interesting challenge, okay, in the criminal justice system, which is a creative brief I'll put out to everybody, okay, is generally for nonviolent first offences, it doesn't pay to jail people because you destroy their future employment prospects and jail tends up as being a bit of a university for crims, okay? But if you don't jail someone who smashed someone's car window, the person gets pissed off. What is it you can do to be more lenient in the punishment of first-time offenders in a way that still satisfies the, um, the, the, the appetite for justice of the victim? Classic perceptual problem. You know, I mean, that's a creative brief in a way. You know, it's perfect. It's great. We know that's what we would have called it. And actually, we spend far, you know, uh, you know, we don't need we need not just to talk to the marketing director, by the way. Um, you know, there are huge problems that creative people. And the other thing we need to do is we need to get the creativity up front. The extent to which the kind of tailorist way we run ad agencies means that the creative department is the last to be engaged in the process is ridiculous. OK, it needs to. How Henry will write all along. It needs to work in parallel, not in series. Because you don't know the direction of travel that a solution takes. As I explain it very simply, okay, there are far more good ideas out there that you can post-rationalize than there are good ideas you can pre-rationalize. And that, that, that I mean that's true of products, it's not just true of ad campaigns, okay? It's true of products. I mean Red Bull, Starbucks, Nespresso, um, Dyson, okay. None of those things made sense in advance, okay? If you come to me and propose them. Uh, you know, I think there's a big market for people who want to spend £3.40 on a cup of coffee and walk around cover it, carrying it in a paper cup. OK, if you said that to me in 1994, I would have assumed you were nuts. Mm-hmm. And so the, the point is that we need to experiment more. We need to imagine more and we need to look at things in vastly more differing ways. And all three of those things come in the realm of what you might call applied creativity. If we allow creativity to be. Uh, which I think has happened, and I think the media agencies have connived in this, that when they say the creative agency, we love it, because the media agency says, well, I think that's a question of the creative agency. The creative agency people have been called creative. So they all, they all go like spaniels being tickled. You know, they go, oh, it's lovely, they call us creative. What the client might hear is a bunch of flaky bastards who wouldn't know a spreadsheet if it mugged them, right? That's what they probably hear from the word creative when a media agency... And I think media agencies have sort of sold, in connivance with the tech firms, have sold clients on the idea that creativity is the little bit of magic fairy dust which you add at the end, or even worse still, it's just content, for F's sake. (laughs) Content. For loud, right? I mean, you know, a dog shitting on a bloody... Field is content. Okay. That that takes the whole artistry of the creative persuasive art and reduces it to a duration, for God's sake, or a word count. Jesus <laughs> me. God. I mean, how have we allowed this to happen? Okay. Seriously. How do we allow how do we allow this to happen to the extent it did? Why do we even allow media planning to be separated from creative? Didn't make any sense to anybody, even in 1990. It makes even less sense in the media environment we have now, where the idea could come from anywhere, right? The fundamental insight could could be a media insight, it could be a psychological or behavioral insight, it could be a, a an artistic insight. Mm-hmm. But how how the hell do we allow this to happen? 
I mean, it doesn't help that, you know, most successful, you know, ad agencies are run by account people and account people tend to be promoted on their deferential skills. But, I, you know, it, it is it is actually shameful the extent to which what what should be a business on the scale of a kind of McKinsey or a Deloitte, the business of creative consulting or, or creative problem solving applied to a wide gamut of business problems. That's what the business should be. And it's allowed itself to get painted into this kind of, you know, uh, artistic corner uh, where you colour in around the edges. There's, there's a lot of discussion about the business model, the agency business model not being fit for purpose. Um, not to kind of go too much into that topic, but what do you think on that? Because, I, I, again, I think if you're, if you're trying to apply creativity to a business problem, but you're thinking the solution is going to be a 30-second TV ad, that obviously well, doesn't work. So how do you get properly kind of paid for it? Because that seems to be the question no one is quite able to I, fix. I, I, Payment by the hour often has a great advantage, which is we weren't confined to making money out of bought media solutions. But we didn't seem to take advantage of that opportunity at all. Well, we just continued doing bought media solutions and then getting paid by the hour instead of getting paid by commission. And then what it does is it turns what payment by the hour does relative to commission. Commission, the more ideas you can get to run or the longer you can get an idea to run, both of which are good. Okay, broadly speaking, the more money you make. Okay, so it was an it was an opportunity maximization game. When you're paid by the hour on a monthly fee, it's a cost efficiency game. It's essentially how can we perform this preordained task uh, at as low a cost as is possible. Okay, it's completely the wrong mindset for what should be an opportunity maximization game. It should be what can we do here that really makes a profitable difference to our clients and enables them to grow into realms that they never had formerly anticipated okay that's what i call by opportunity maximization instead we've turned into an efficiency optimization game where we're talking about the blended rate the balance of creative people in any agency the ratio of creative people in the agency is far too small because if there's one group of people you want doing nothing some of the time it's creative people planners it wouldn't hurt either okay Generally, you know, you want account people to be a bit busy, okay, a bit busier, but even free time for account people is valuable. But instead, what you do is you remove any discretionary time from the equation. You maintain this ludicrous pretense that advertising is produced by a kind of Taylorist Henry Ford sequential production line model. And you try and basically construct a story as though the process is completely linear. I mean, Paul Feldwick wrote a fantastic paper about this around the origination of the Barclay card uh, boff uh, campaign, where he pointed out yeah. that it was a completely nonlinear, stochastic, I think would be the technical term, process, okay, with a hell of a lot of random experimentation, reversal, scrumpled up paper, return to, you know, back to square one. And yeah. the, the brilliant insight when it came about actually came from a research group, from a respondent in a research group. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this kind of, and you, of course, what you see is this ludicrous fetishization of the division of labor as well, which is really appropriate to, it's appropriate to the, to the manufacturing of products, but it's not appropriate to the generation of ideas. The really interesting ideas actually come from the intersection of two things. Yeah, that's what they say creativity is, isn't it? They kind of putting yeah. together different strands of things together. So ah, I, 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 part, I partly have to create a behavioral science practice to escape from this straitjacket. 
which yeah. is, you know, kind of muscle memory of, um, so, you know, the, the joy of actually saying, you know, looking at business problems from a, through a psychological lens and actually recontextualizing them, which is exactly what I did when I was a copywriter. I'm just doing it in a slightly different field. Uh, has been an absolute mm-hmm. delight. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening to the Campaign Podcast and thanks to Rory Sutherland for joining me. This episode was edited by Lindsay Riley and you can read news and analysis by Campaign Magazine at campaignlive.co.uk. If you're a first-time listener, please subscribe and leave a review. Goodbye and hope you can join us again next week. Music